Welcome to mini-episode number three of Let's Talk 10. I'm Dan Fisher. Today is the beginning of an experiment. It's a totally frivolous one. No great discoveries will come from this, but it's an experiment nonetheless, and the test subject is myself. In 1974, when I was 10 years old, I was allowed to stay up late on a school night to watch fellow 10-year-old Tatum O'Neill win her Best Supporting Actress Oscar for Paper Moon. The winner is... Tatum O'Neill. Ever since then, I have loved awards shows that paid tribute to all of the stuff that I've been obsessed with my whole life. Movies, TV, and music. The thing about awards shows, and even the casual observer could back me up on this, is that more often than not, they get it wrong. Or not necessarily wrong, because as I've already preached a bunch on this show, when it comes to what entertains us, I don't believe in wrong, or best, or worst. All that should matter is that a movie or a show or a song connects to each person in the audience in a way that they feel is satisfying. But... The film, television, and recording industries do hand out awards every year, and hopeless fans like me tune in faithfully, rooting for our favorites and bemoaning the utter mediocrities that often wind up taking home all the big prizes. The thing about these big, silly annual awards extravaganzas is that they, in their own way, help me to understand pop culture history, especially its chronology. I'll always know that 1972 was the year of The Godfather. Or that in 1999, Santana had that huge comeback with Smooth and the album Supernatural because of their having been designated as the best of those years by their respective academies. Awards help me and other amateur pop culture historians keep track of what was going on in the entertainment world at that time. Except they usually don't. Not really. In 1982, E.T. was indisputably the movie of the year, critically lauded and on its way to being at that time the all-time box office champ. But who remembers what won Best Picture for that year? Anybody? Okay, it was Gandhi. For 1984, the year of Purple Rain, She's So Unusual, Born in the USA, and Private Dancer, Grammy's Album of the Year was... Toto 4. Here's what makes this, for me, an experiment. Like anybody with a supposed modicum of taste, I do not believe that Toto 4 should have been named the album of the year. Not only do I consider those other 1984 albums I mentioned, all fellow Album of the Year nominees with Toto, by the way, to be superior listening experiences. 
But I believe they're more representative of what was going on culturally in that year. Let's go crazy. Girls just want to have fun. Born in the USA, I think, more accurately reflect that unique 1984 vibe than Rosanna. But I have something to confess. I've never listened to Toto 4. I've heard Rosanna and Africa and even the ballad I Won't Let You Go hundreds of times for sure. And I don't not like them. They're catchy singles and I admit I've always been a sucker for yacht rock. But I've never purchased nor played Toto 4 from beginning to end. So who am I really to judge its quality as an album, its award worthiness? Is it possible that for these many years, I have been unfair to poor Toto? I can say this about most of the Album of the Year winners, from Henry Mancini's 1961 Peter Gunn, to Quincy Jones's 1991 Back on the Block, to Billie Eilish's 2019 When We All Fall Asleep, Where Do We Go? I'm that bad type, make your mama sad type, make your girlfriend mad type. Those albums may indeed have been deserving of their Grammys, but I've never given them a chance to find out for myself by actually listening to them. So, starting now, through a series of mini-episodes, that's what I'm going to do for this podcast and for my own self-edification. Every now and then, I'll choose a Grammy-anointed album of the year. I'll listen to the whole thing, and then I'll talk about whether or not I believe it deserved that honor, and if not, who did. I know I'd go from rags to riches. Tony Bennett's been on my mind since his recent death this year. My father loved Tony Bennett. Dad would belt out because of you or from rags to riches while he ambled around the house. I liked them too. Tony Bennett's voice and style were impossible to resist, and he just seemed like such a friendly guy, more amiable and approachable than his contemporary Frank Sinatra. Though it was true, if you were to have gone through the milk crates of my album collections, flipping past the B-52s and the Beatles, skipping back from David Bowie, I don't think you would have found a single Tony Bennett album. But he was always around in the voice of my dad or his background music while I shopped for groceries. And at least as far as I was concerned, he was always appreciated. In 1994... And the album of the year goes to... MTV Unplugged, Tony Bennett. Wow. David Kahn Tony Bennett finally took home the big prize for MTV Unplugged. I don't believe this. I really don't believe it. <laughs> this is, uh... Maybe it wasn't a complete surprise. He'd won over a dozen Grammys throughout his career, but never Album of the Year. Of course, the members of the Recording Academy had always favored established veterans like Frank Sinatra or Ray Charles over upstarts like Prince or Cyndi Lauper. At the very least, they always seemed to prefer easier-to-digest sounds from Paul Simon or Christopher Cross over whatever was happening in hard rock or hip-hop at the time. 
For example, in the 1960s, Frank Sinatra won Album of the Year honors three times over the likes of Bob Dylan, Aretha Franklin, and the Rolling Stones. Though at least in 1967, the Beatles managed to sneak in with their only album of the year, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Anyway, back to 1994 and Tony Bennett's album of the year, MTV Unplugged. Here are the four other nominees for that year. Three tenors in concert, Jose Carreras, Placido Domingo, and Luciano Pavarotti. Seal. Seal. Longing in their hearts, Bonnie Raitt. A gypsy woman told my mother. And from the cradle, Eric Clapton. Is there one among us who can righteously argue for any of these as deserving of the title of 1994's Album of the Year? That any of them were representative of that year when Bill Clinton gave his first State of the Union address, when Nelson Mandela was elected as president of South Africa, when OJ and his infamous white Bronco led the cops on a low-speed chase on live television? Numerous uh, highway patrol vehicles, but because of the intensity, it seems like people have heard about what's going on. Bonnie Raitt is terrific, always has been, but her nomination was a hangover effect from the success of her 1989 album of the year, Nick of Time. The same could be said for Eric Clapton, still basking in Grammy glory for his unplugged album, One could make the case for Seal, he was at least relatively new, or the three tenors if one were of a certain demographic, if only it weren't for some of the 1994 albums that weren't even nominated, like TLC's Crazy Sexy Cool, or Dookie by Green Day, or Boys to Men's too. Or The Downward Spiral by Nine Inch Nails. Or Nas's Illmatic. Or Definitely Maybe by Oasis. Or Ready to Die by Notorious B.I.G. Or Dummy by Portishead. Or even more Grammy-friendly stuff like Cracked Rear View by Hootie and the Blowfish. Or Johnny Cash's comeback, American Recordings. The Beast in Me. They could even have chosen another unplugged album released in that very same year, Nirvana's own MTV Unplugged in New York. To face, to face, Here's another thing. Let's say you're a young listener in the early 1990s and everything that's been happening in hip hop. East Coast, West Coast thing, the innovations of artists like Tribe Called Quest or the Fugees or Snoop Dogg has just been blowing your mind. 
I could only imagine that seeing all of these so-called big awards being handed out to Tony Bennett or Bonnie Raitt would seem like yet another disappointing but not entirely unexpected reminder that life was not always fair, if at all. There would be no way, no way, that you'd ever concede that Tony Bennett's album might be better than Nas's or Notorious B.I.G.'s. I mean, if I were to make a documentary about what life was like in the 1990s, with all respect to my dad, I don't think I'd choose Tony Bennett for the soundtrack. I'd probably go with grunge, or New Jack Swing, or maybe even boy bands. was a fantastic year for Tony Bennett, who, no matter your tastes or musical preferences, was an undeniable legend. And here's something you might not have realized. Before the 1990s, Tony Bennett had gone through a real rough patch in his life. From the mid-1960s all the way into the 1980s, the market had dried up for the crooners of traditional pop music like Perry Como or Dean Martin, even old Blue Eyes himself. Tony Bennett, meanwhile, had been dropped by his label and had developed a nasty cocaine habit. In the 1980s, with the help of his sons who took over his management, Tony Bennett cleaned up and hit the road, performing live for any venue that would welcome him. In 1987, he re-signed to Columbia and began releasing albums again. Danny Bennett encouraged his father to move away from his Vegas image and booked him into more youthful gigs, like Late Night with David Letterman, Mr. Tony Bennett. Tony, stand up and... Sesame Street. It looks beautiful tonight, Mr. Bennett. Oh, it sure does, Big Bird. And The Simpsons. Look, it's Tony Bennett! Hey, good to see you. It's against the law to frown in capital city. Always a progressive and a philanthropist, Tony performed in a series of 1993 benefit concerts organized by alternative rock radio stations alongside Arcade Fire and the Dave Matthews Band. Tony got a real kick out of mingling with the kids, and the feeling was mutual, as Generations X and Z seemed to regard him as something of a cool grandpa. So when the ongoing MTV series Unplugged, a hit show which had already featured performers like Pearl Jam, Mariah Carey, and LL Cool J, invited Tony to appear, he showed up, determined to put on a show that anybody of any age could appreciate. He didn't change up much of his established act. There were no Nirvana covers that day, just a jazz trio behind him led by pianist and longtime musical director Ralph Sharon performing standards by legendary songwriters like Yip Harburg, Irving Berlin, the Gershwins, Johnny Mercer. But somehow, it worked. While it's unlikely that any of the kids in the audience went home to destroy their Soundgarden or Whitney Houston CDs that night, their affection for Tony Bennett and his music, as far as I can tell from listening, was palpable and authentic. So yes, that part of the experiment was fulfilled. I did indeed listen to all 22 tracks of Grammy's 1994 Album of the Year, Tony Bennett's MTV Unplugged. And I enjoyed it. 
Tony Bennett was 68 years old in 1994, but his voice was still robust, able to take effortless leaps from the low notes to the highs, playing with beats, exploring tone and phrasing through these very familiar tunes, as if they were still as new to him as they were to most of the audience. He had some help from the kids, too, when then-red-hot Katie Lang joined Tony from Moonglow. And now when there's Moonglow Way up in the blues Then Elvis Costello for They Can't Take That Away From Me. The way she sings off-key the way she haunts my dreams No, no, they can't take that away from me It's just fun to listen to, the same way it's fun to watch Serena Williams on the tennis court, or to witness the still innovative, still extraordinary cinema of Steven Spielberg or Martin Scorsese. I left my heart San Francisco. Through all of what would remain of his years, which ended on July 21st, 2023, Tony Bennett brought sincere, unfakeable energy and enthusiasm every time he stepped up on a stage and approached the microphone. It seemed to have brought as much joy of life to him as it did to his lucky audiences. Climb halfway to the stars. All of that said, do I think that MTV Unplugged was the best album of 1994? I'm afraid I don't. The competition, as noted earlier, was fierce. I've always believed that the Grammys and the Recording Academy, and all awards givers really, have an obligation to recognize the innovators of their times and to keep in mind that their choices for best whatevers just might be judged by history. And too often, they fail at this responsibility. Case in point, in 1990, the very first Grammy for best hard rock metal performance went over fellow nominees ACDC. Iggy Pop, Jane's Addiction, and Metallica. To Jethro Tull. So, for the sake of this podcast, and for what that's worth, here are my Parallel Universe Grammy nominees for 1994's Album of the Year. Gone. One more American Recordings, Johnny Cash. The Downward Spiral, Nine Inch Nails. Illmatic, Nas. MTV Unplugged, Tony Bennett. MTV Unplugged in New York, Nirvana. And the album of the year, as far as I'm concerned, reflecting critical acclaim and cultural legacy, 
and album sales goes to... TLC. The Crazy Sexy Cool. At least, in my opinion. Sorry, Dad. I hope you've enjoyed this mini-episode of Let's Talk 10. We'll have another full-length episode with a new guest at a new Top 10 list, dropping to you next Monday. I hope you can join us for that. As always, thanks for listening.